Welcome to the Faculty Podcast brought to you by RTS Washington, part of a 50-plus year endeavor to train pastors and other church leaders in the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. We are glad to have a guest in the studio today. Actually, Dr. Jameson, you are one of our elite two-time guests. Wow. We don't have many of those. All right. Who's the other one? Uh, Lloyd Kim. Okay. Who we had, All right. Who, who will get posted last week. Uh, so uh, we're glad to have uh, Bobby Jamison uh, here with us, PhD in New Testament from Cambridge, and pastor at Capitol Hill Baptist Church, and also, I think, the pinnacle achievement teaching for RTS Washington in just a couple weeks on theological interpretation of Scripture. Very grateful to be doing it. Love RTS. Happy to be here. We are glad to have you, and we're glad to have you on uh, the podcast. And I thought we would talk about theological interpretation of Scripture. We've got also, in addition to uh, Bobby Jameson, we've got Peter Lee here in the studio, professor of Old Testament and dean of students here at RTS Washington. And I'm Tommy Keene, professor of New Testament. So we've got two biblical studies guys trained in redemptive historical interpretation of Scripture. With a person from a uh, theological interpretation of Scripture position. I guess. <laughs> I guess I'll be Maybe. part of our... <laughs> it's, it, if, it's, if you, you have said so. <laughs> it's, best, it's, best for the, it's best for the ratings if we are as antagonistic as possible. So. Sure, come at me. Uh, uh, but, uh, yeah, you are, you are at least... Uh, ascribed to be a proponent of theological interpretation by some, by some. So uh, I and you're teaching on it. So we thought we that's true have a discussion uh, about it. But perhaps then uh, we should start with defining our terms. Sure. Well, um, in theological circles in the West in the last thirty years, there's been kind of a movement of recovery, you could say, mm-hmm. of of trying to recapture more theological and more traditional ways of reading scripture that in some ways have been uh, attacked or ignored or lost in the broader sweep of kind of post-enlightenment biblical interpretation. So last 250 years. So kind of a a retrieval, a revival movement, um, kind of crossing church and academic lines, crossing denominational lines, even ecumenical lines. And it's traveled under the name of theological interpretation of scripture. Mm -hmm. There's been, you know, conferences, books, book series, you know, uh, dictionaries, all kinds of stuff. And, and for reformed and evangelical folks, maybe some of the names most associated with that would be Kevin Van Hooser, uh, Daniel Trier, um, Scott Swain and Mike Allen are editing a a international theological commentary series. And Mm -hmm. I think they would very, very much see that as carrying on kind of the work of TIS and frankly trying to put it into practice. One of the things that TIS has done a lot of is kind of uh, seemingly endless discussions about method with maybe not always as much uh, practice and kind of showing what this actually looks like in interpreting scripture. That would be one criticism some people would offer of the movement. Um, But I guess to just offer maybe a broad definition and then specify it a little bit, TIS would be, you know, seeking to read scripture in a way that pays attention to uh, canonical unity, uh, that pays attention to Scripture's ultimate subject matter of teaching about God and all things in God, uh, that tries to self-consciously learn from and apprentice ourselves to uh, the history of the church 
um, classical traditions and great interpreters. And I can include everything from Augustine and Aquinas uh, to Reformed confessions. You know, that's that's an element of theological interpretation, uh, confessions that we might subscribe to and hold to. And how do those uh, inform our reading of Scripture and provide resources for our reading of Scripture? Mm-hmm. Um, there can be aspects of a, a definition of TIS or of the movement that I don't personally find as much value in, like a recovery of the, the medieval fourfold sense of reading scripture. I don't find as much use in that mm. as some proponents of TIS would. And sometimes TIS has just, it, it's been a little bit of a, almost like a grab bag for anything that people want to sort of throw in that seems to have been neglected or marginalized in ways people are taught to study the Bible in more academic settings. It can all get kind of chucked in. I mean, it's a little bit of like the problem with biblical theology. Don Carson has quipped, you know, in those days, uh, everyone did what was right in his own eyes and called it biblical theology. (laughs) There could be a similar problem with TIS. Um, But I would say, you know, to put it more positively, and the kind of TIS that I'm especially interested in trying to do, I would kind of put two parts to it. One is, uh, to paraphrase Scott Swain, uh, the purpose of Scripture is to bring us into covenantal fellowship with God Mm -hmm. and to sustain us in, Mm -hmm. renew us in covenantal fellowship with God. And theological interpretation of Scripture is simply trying to read Scripture with that ultimate aim in view and in a way that achieves that aim. Uh, And trying to do so in a way that's maybe self-conscious about, well, what does that require of us as readers? What specific kind of habits or postures or tools or resources does reading Scripture in light of its ultimate purpose require of us? And I suppose um, in in the book Biblical Reasoning that I co-wrote with Tyler Whitman, which I guess is my uh, TIS manifesto in a way. (laughs) And and very methodological. Well, that is methodological, yes. So the Biblical Reasoning book is very methodological. We're trying to lay out basically rules for reading Scripture that we get from Scripture itself. Mm -hmm. We notice Scripture talks in this way about God or in this way about Christ or in this way about the Trinity. We try to distill those into rules that then guide our exegesis. There is a sense in which that is a statement of of theological interpretation of Scripture, a program for it. We also try to put it into practice mm-hmm. with, with doing exegesis of specific passages, sometimes in a very sustained way. And I guess what we're trying to add there, which you do find in Augustine and Athanasius and Cyril and, and, and certainly in Reformers and Reformed scholastics, is an understanding that when when you get a distilled doctrine that is a right uh, understanding of whether a particular passage or a number of passages understood rightly together, that should guide your exegesis. Yeah. That should inform your exegesis. There should be an arrow that goes from what the text says to distilling that into a doctrinal understanding that's faithful to the text and transparent mm-hmm. to the text. And then because it is faithful to the text and transparent to the text, that doctrinal understanding becomes a tool for doing exegesis. So I suppose what I'm most interested in advocating for is theology as tools for exegesis. You could even envision kind of a theological toolkit or toolbox. That's that's the kind of metaphor we use in biblical reasoning. Uh, you know, the doctrine of God and the creator-creature distinction becomes a tool for exegesis. Yeah. The two natures of Christ becomes a tool for exegesis. The distinction between the one essence of God and the three persons in God becomes a tool for exegesis right. that you can actually use to discern the right sense of, to take, take a, a passage almost at random. You know, Jesus talking to Mary Magdalene in John 20, 17, before the ascension, do not hold on to me. I'm, you know, I'm ascending to my God. Uh, tell, tell my brothers that I'm ascending to my father and and your father, my God and your God. Well, how, okay, Jesus can call God his father. He also says he's their father. Yeah. The God of the father is their right. father. But what about my God and your God? Isn't Jesus God? Isn't he the word who is God? How can he, how can he have a God? How can God the father be his God? Well, 
if you understand the two natures of Christ, there's a real easy answer to that. Uh, insofar as he's God, he's mm-hmm. one with the Father. Insofar as he became incarnate for our salvation and is truly a human being, he relates to God the Father as his God. And so um, that's just one one instance of, yeah, the kind of theological interpretation I'm most interested in modeling and yeah. advocating, where your theology then informs, enriches, guides, instructs your exegesis. So on that note... You know, I, I kind of think of that way of putting it. It sounds like exegesis is not just a bottom-up, you know, te- the text to theology, but you're self-consciously saying, no, my theology, my doctrine, my system informs my exegesis. It's actually a tool in the exegetical process. So to what extent is TIS kind of a top-down, almost a could, – could you even – would it be wrong to characterize it as almost deductive? That's a good question. And there are certainly ways in which it could it could become. So so for, on the one hand, yes, I do think that's an accurate way of stating it. And there's a sense in which you move from inductive exegesis that then leads you to certain theological conclusions that then becomes a legitimate way to approach the text deductively right. because you bring this genuine knowledge with you. And that's, right. how, that's in a sense how all knowledge works. Right. And we all have a prior understanding. We all have a sort of system or a framework. Um, system is inevitable. System is not a bad word. Sometimes people use the word system as if any system must be, you know, chopping off rough edges of the text. Like you're trying to, you know, take a dog and shove it into a kennel that's too small or something, and the dog's going to get injured no matter what you do. Mm-hmm. The system is the kennel that's too small. Well, well, no. It, uh, any confessing that Scripture is the Word of God and that God doesn't lie means Scripture is self-consistent. Yeah. And so if you've understood Scripture rightly, in a sense, the deductive aspect is just the Reformation principle and more broadly Christian, Christian principle of interpreting Scripture with Scripture. Mm. And that deductive uh, aspect of it is a legitimate uh, portion. It's not the whole story. You've gotten there in one sense inductively, and it's subject to further inductive testing. If your understanding seems to contradict this text, well, you know, something's got to give. Either your big picture doctrinal understanding needs to be refined or you're reading this text wrongly. But yeah, I think think that's a fair description. But I think that's helpful. I mean, as an Old Testament guy, you know, we uh, we tend to be distant from systematic theological thought, um, and it doesn't necessarily, you know, we don't necessarily think theology in that classical sense when we think about the Old Testament. Not like in the New Testament, you're a little more connected to that because you're directly connected to Paul, Romans, yeah. Ephesians, and, yeah. and other key texts where you're dealing with justification and things yep. like that. But when you come across a text like uh, you know, the Lord regretted that he made man or that he regretted that he made Saul king. And there's a couple of passages like that where, um, from a, a theological standpoint, it really challenges our doctrine of God. Uh, and to what degree is this, you know, to what degree do we understand God now in terms of his immutability in light of these things? And so to have sort of theological parameters is actually a nice way to do exegesis in that point, just to kind of keep you on safe grounds. The the error that, uh, and uh, I don't know if you guys have discussed this, but a lot of the error that you see in, in some Old Testament text or, 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 or uh, scholars in the field is to not come in with that um, grid. Principially. R- right, yeah. and so they make certain conclusions. You see that, and, and the, the Lord of Red is just one example, yeah. but even something like the Abrahamic Covenant 
has been understood as almost Abraham merited to a certain degree, because the text seems to say that. So unless you understand it in a certain way, it it can lead you a bit astray. And so uh, to have uh, theological parameters does seem to be a wise way to approach, at least uh, in in certain areas of tricky exegesis. I agree 100%, and I think... um one of the key theological principles would be using the creator-creature distinction as a hermeneutical guideline. And and one patristic way of talking about this is that they would often use the phrase God-fitting or God-fittingness as a kind of rule. Well, when you come to the Lord regretted that he made man, you know, in the Noah narrative in Genesis 6 to 8, or the Lord regretted that he made Saul king in 1 Samuel 15, you have to understand that in a God-fitting way. It is teaching us something. It's there for our, for revelation, for instruction, for, you know, teaching, rebuke, training in righteousness. It's telling us something real about God's actions, his relationship to his people. But you have to understand these seemingly human, seemingly creaturely, seemingly limited ways of God's interacting with his people. You have to understand that in a God-fitting way. And so I, I think you're you're exactly right that, that um, some portions of the Old Testament more than others uh, will call for that type of explicit theological reflection. But in a sense, all of it does. You know, in some of those Old, Old Testament scholars you're thinking about, they might claim to be theology neutral or free of theology, no contaminating taint of theology right, in their, right. you know, pure exegetical approach to the text. But then what they wind up doing is imposing a sort of Greek mythological view or an ancient, God. right, or an older or, one. Right. Or that's right. Or or an older, you know, treating God as if he's one of the ancient Near Eastern tribal deities who's who's who has these kind of limits, defects, Well, it is interesting. There is, you know, even something like monotheism uh, is so clearly deuteronomic, but yet there are those who will want to make the distinction between, you know, Ale versus Elohim versus Yahweh yeah. as if there are a multiplicity of... Now, again, there are texts that seem to allude to this, so... Uh, and again, to have a theological background is helpful. The um, I, I guess I'm curious. What you're saying is, is you know, to some who want to base everything on on exegetical, so it's it's bottom up. Yes, is sound. I think that's okay. Although I have made the argument for exactly what you're make, saying that to a certain degree, a, a system allows for us to do proper exegesis within safer parameters. Yeah. Um, it sounds great. I guess I'm curious the pushback. Uh, what have been some of the uh, uh, that you kind of hinted that might be floating around out there? Yeah, that's a good question. I think um, I think uh, it depends your of your kind of starting point. So to just take, you know, maybe. Um, reformed and evangelical folks who will affirm the inerrancy of scripture, the unity of the canon, you know, the harmony of scripture, the pushback wouldn't necessarily be that this is somehow wrong or against the character of scripture, but maybe that it maybe that it adds some kind of unnecessary complexity or something. And we, and we almost don't need to clutter up our, our workspace with all these kind of things. We can sort of just get by with a, um, you know, kind of kind of learn the language, learn the context, work our way up sort of purely inductively. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, you know, since writing biblical reasoning, I've not had any push, anybody push back that I can recall in exactly that way. But I think there'll be a kind of instinctive response among evangelicals and some reformed folks. Of course, there'd be people who don't, you know, if you lose the presupposition of the inerrancy of scripture, therefore the unity and harmony of scripture, well, then all bets are off. And then, then there's all sorts of charges of imposing, oh, how convenient, you know, we decide scripture actually teaches what the church has always confessed. And we magically discover all these doctrines in the Bible and, and the charge that we're just imposing that on scripture right, right. 
Um, which then we have to justify it at the bar of exegesis, you know, which, which we mean to do, which I've tried to do in, in other essays and books and things to try to yeah. justify some of these things exegetically. Um, but even on the inductive point, you know, just to go back to one point you made earlier, on even in the bottom-up approach, I think one of the key issues that modern evangelicals have not paid as much attention to, but that our forebears certainly did, is um, the nature of language and what it means to use words to refer to God, and even for God himself to use human language to refer to himself. Bovink mm. has a great section on this, a few pages in his um, volume two. It's around pages like 99 to 110 or so of his Doctrine of God volume, where he talks about how God condescends to us, a key Reformed theme in Revelation. God puts his own names into our mouth. So, so we're using God-authorized words to refer to God. But in so doing... He's condescending to a human level. Mm -hmm. And scripture, therefore, has an anthropomorphic character through and through. It's not just a sort of scattered anthropomorphism like God regretted, God relented. Oh, he seemed to change his mind. But we understand that as, as applying a sort of human state to God in a kind of metaphorical way. That's not a literal, direct, one-to-one -one, uh, assertion about God's being or character. But Boving says that scripture is anthropomorphic through and through. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, even as part of our bottom-up work, of simply getting from the text to an awareness of God. I think paying attention to how language works, things like metaphor, analogy, um, yeah, different types of figures of speech, and how those are those are common in referring to any more sort of abstract entity from a more concrete reality. Yeah. Well, how much more when we're talking about the God of the universe? When they're talking, we're talking about the God to whom no one and nothing can be compared. So I think even then, there's often, I guess, my pushback to the to the evangelical person who says we don't need all of these kind of tools. Yeah, this is sort of cluttering right. things up. I would say, well, Eve, you know, God is a rock. Deuteronomy 32, you know, or, or David in, in um, end, end of 2 Samuel or Psalm 18. Well, what does that mean? Yeah. You, you have to be applying some type of intellectual framework from knowing the character of God, the being of God. It means he's stable, steadfast, trustworthy, a refuge, mm -hmm. etc. It does not mean he's a mineral compound. Yeah. It does not mean he's a or, material or object. Or a stone deity. Or a, or a stone deity. That's right. Yeah. All sorts of things. So... Uh, one, I don't know if this is pushback, but a question that I have, I was going to ask it a different way. I was going to ask you to contrast TIS with, I think, how both of us were trained under kind of a classically redemptive historical Bossian sure. yep. approach. Uh, but I'm, uh, maybe I'm going to ask it a different way, which is, what is the role of historical situatedness? Like, how to, to what extent is TIS kind of comfortable talking about the historical development of scripture, or maybe to, to word it more polemically, what would you say to somebody who said, well, doing it this way for the church, in the, in the church, with the yeah. church, and for the church in the modern period prioritizes the final form of the text in a way that might sever it, say, from Abraham or from uh, David, who have, have a more primitive, perhaps, understanding of God. Oh, yeah, kind of a couple issues wrapped up there. Um, I do think that last kind of bit, you know, Abraham, more primitive understanding of God, that kind of thing. I mean, I think anyone who's committed 
to a more evolutionary account, mm-hmm. you know, from a sort of lower earlier doctrine to a higher later one, or a, a vaguely, you know, henotheistic, or maybe they're polytheists originally, or who knows what, and it eventually turns into this kind of strict monotheism in Deuteronomy or later portions of Isaiah or whatever. I do think that um, someone who's committed to a view like that, they're going to have to... Uh, basically, they're going to have to pick and choose within Scripture of what they think is the sort of real theology and pull that out of it. Mm. At the end of the day, they're going to have some criterion that they bring from elsewhere in Scripture. Uh, uh, they bring from somewhere else than Scripture to try to decide what they think Scripture actually teaches. As opposed to what I think that has been traditional in the church and clarified in the Reformation and upheld since then by those who adhere to the authority of Scripture is that, you know, we we don't see disharmony. We don't see disunity. There is a progressive character to the development of Revelation, but none of that which comes later contradicts what comes earlier. It only deepens, clarifies, reveals new vistas, including, you know, the, the transition from the clear revelation of God as one through the Old Covenant to the more open manifestation of God as three persons in the new. That that's, that's not a contradiction, but a deepening. Well, could you describe that as an evolution, though? Yeah, it's I guess not, I, would, I wouldn't see it. I personally wouldn't see it as a contradiction, but but at, but as a kind of evolving understanding of the complexity and similarly the unity of God. Yeah, I guess when I was using language of evolution before, I meant more um, from critical or unbelieving scholars yeah, who would see a kind of historical or social process right. of these ideas changing through social influence. And this is a sort of record of humans' best efforts to think their way to God. If you're starting from the doctrine of inspiration, I don't think it's necessarily a problem to use language of evolution, though I'd prefer to talk about like organic development. Yeah, me too. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. um, because organic development implies a kind of purposive process, like, you know, the organic development from an acorn to an oak tree. Well, that that's built into the nature of the acorn. It's programmed uh, by the acorn's designer, you know, God himself through the, or, you know, the, the sort of structure of the acorn has built this in. So there's a kind of unfolding of something that... Uh, elements of it were already there, but not fully present. Right. From from infancy to maturity, rather it, than a distinctly different view. Exactly. And where, if you talk about evolution, it might be it starts as one thing and sort of winds up as something totally different. Yeah. And I guess there is, you know, some versions of TIS could be more susceptible to a charge of maybe not paying enough attention to, to history, historical context, cultural context, historic, historical situatedness, maybe wanting to skip directly from sort of a, a surface meaning or literal meaning of the text to a kind of direct application. I do think, you know, a redemptive historical hermeneutic, biblical theology, working through the sequence of the covenants, I think all that stuff is really important and is a real gain. You know, one of the defining features of modernity from kind of, you know, 1750 on is a greater sense of historical particularity. The differences across time, across culture, mm. the way our life uh, in some ways is not like it was in ancient Rome, ancient Greece, ancient mm. Israel. So I think one of the real gains of, of how Christians have had to wrestle with those things in the last 300 years is a greater sensitivity and alertness to difference uh, even within the canon or difference from us, difference of circumstance, mm-hmm. difference of, of covenantal context, mm-hmm. difference of historical mm-hmm. context. So I think some forms of TIS might be a little bit impatient with those things. And then I'll change teams, as it were, and defend kind of 
Voss, Ritter Boss, Greg Beal. Preach it. You know, <laughs> I've got my Reformed Biblical Theology tattoo hiding under here. I mean, I was re- I was reading those guys when I was an undergrad. Yeah. <laughs> so wow. I think, I think undergrad. I think in that sense, uh, classic Reformed Biblical Theology and, and a kind of healthy TIS should be great allies and kind of left-hand, right-hand go together. Uh, yeah, that, I definitely would agree. I mean, you know, I think, like, for example, when we talk about you know, the question that's raised about, um, you know, was Adam saved? Uh, we have to articulate a- Adam's soteriology is the same as ours, essentially, that he is saved by the grace of God through faith in Christ. Um, it is a little tricky, uh, where I guess I could see TIS is embracing that kind of statement holistically, which we should affirm and and apply that to someone like Adam or Noah or Abraham or whomever, uh, uh, while at the same time remembering that his understanding of Messiah, we we can't impose a full doctrine of Christ and say that's what Adam understood. That's right. Because that would clearly be anachronistic and just the level of revelation wasn't there. And uh, so I could see a a nice kind of handmaiden or or, or a a partnering of TIS with... um, uh, classical, well, I don't even know. If, yeah, I guess a, a a a pretty classical biblical theology, and where they're not necessarily seeing different things, uh, but they're just uh, emphasizing different aspects of the historical time period of Revelation, um, without uh, compromising the actual systematic doctrine underlying it. Yeah, I agree with that. And you raise the issue of anachronism, you know, meaning taking something that only developed or emerged later and projecting it back onto onto something earlier. And that's a kind of historical fallacy. I I think there's um, anachronism is interesting because on the one hand, I agree that, you know, biblical theology helps us to avoid that and, and kind of disciplines us to not uh, import back onto, as it were, the historical Adam. <laughs> How much did he know? How much could he understand? Right. You know, a kind of sensitivity to context and the unfolding character of progressive revelation will help us there. And so I do think there are tools we've developed uh, in the church in the last 300 years that have made us more sensitive to that and therefore more accurate and careful handlers of Scripture. And one thing that's happened there is that some proof texts that were often used to establish key doctrines have rightly fallen away, whether it's the Johannine comma in 1 John 5, 7 <laughs> that on text critical grounds has kind of been pushed out, or a passage like... Um, you know, and this is where I'll differ even from some friends and colleagues, but I don't put a whole lot of weight on Proverbs 8 as a sort of Christological proof text. I do think it anticipates, you know, wisdom. I think wisdom is a category that gets used for Christ that the New Testament's picking up. But I don't think wisdom, the kind of pre-creational role of wisdom there, I don't put a whole lot of weight on that. I do think it's getting appropriated or adopted a little bit in the New Testament, but I'll sort of go to those New Testament passages yeah. directly. Or even more specifically, Psalm 2-7, you are my son, today I have begotten you. I affirm the doctrine of eternal generation. I think it's taught plainly in Scripture. I don't think it's taught in that verse. I think Psalm 2-7 is enthronement. You know, it's about being installed on the throne of heaven, attaining to the throne of David, uh, obtaining the messianic inheritance, and and entering into what is effectively a covenantal relationship of fulfilling the Davidic covenant, the father-son language coming from 2 Samuel 7-14. So in one way, I take a kind of more historic 
you know, an, uh, uh, sensitive to anachronism kind of reading of Psalm 2-7, I would say, even over against some dear friends and colleagues who argue, no, that is eternal generation, that today is eternal, all this kind of thing. I just say, no, look at how it's used in the New Testament. This is a moment in time. It is revealing something about Jesus' identity. And to fully explain that, I think you have to appeal to his divinity and all the rest. But um, I think anachronism, yeah, it's a legitimate concern. At the same time, I guess one one kind of that that charge. Here's another here's another uh, criticism or objection yeah. would be the charge of anachronism. Oh, this language of uh, all these detailed theological terms: person, nature, essence. You know, all the kind of christological, you know, Nicaea or Chalcedon or all these kind of things. The charge is often uh, levied. You know that that's all anachronistic. You're just imposing that back on the text. I think what I would say is basically. Um, exegetical reasoning, and here I'm borrowing from John Webster, you know, exegetical reasoning tries to make sense of the way the words run. This sentence, this paragraph, this section of a book, this book, you're trying to trace it out and follow it as closely as you can. You're disciplining your mind to kind of reproduce the order, the flow, the connections, the context. And dogmatic reasoning, which is complementary to it and in some ways draws on it, dogmatic reasoning tries to make sense of the teaching of Scripture as a whole in what it is referring to, which is God, creation, humanity, our, our fall into sin, redemption through Christ, our ultimate state of glorification, all those huge topics that scripture teaches us. Um, dogmatic reasoning is attempting to make sense of the whole. And the only legitimate role for those technical terms is in distilling or articulating something scripture actually teaches about its ultimate yeah. subject matter. Yeah. It's just giving us a shorthand, a way to encapsulate that or to, or to define a misunderstanding and keep our thought within proper guardrails. So I would say those, those technical terms are tools of dogmatic reasoning that's ultimately rooted in exegesis. Yeah. So you're, you're saying, I think this is, this is helpful. So it's not TIS instead of or in opposition to a redemptive historical or just more actually... Um, grammatical historical approach, but rather those are component parts of the, the the method. Yes, exactly. So in one sense, I would want a distinctively theological kind of layer to feature into any full-blown account of how do we read the Bible. Yeah. You know, if I, if I were teaching just a hermeneutics class this summer, not a specifically TIS class, and I had to cover all my bases. Well, I would cover, you know, genre, and I would cover history, and I would mm -hmm. cover literary tools, and I would cover redemptive history, mm -hmm. the progression of scripture, but I would want there to be kind of on an equal footing with those, this type of theological discipline of how do we arrive at uh, a, a, an intelligent understanding of the things scripture teaches, because that's ultimately what, what hermeneutics is aiming at. And there, there's just some distinctive habits, practices, uh, that when, when this is a whole text talking about God, <laughs> yeah. who's not like anything else or anyone else, there's disciplines we have to undergo in order to understand it rightly. I, I love everything you're saying. Um, I am curious, a, a lot of the way you're describing um, TIS, um, I could see fitting in the New Testament context mm. pretty well because, mm -hmm. you know, we're dealing with Paul in the fullness of Revelation, yeah. uh, all the... Um, uh, theological conclusion. Well, the majority of uh, theological text that's used in in the formulation of of theology is primarily not exclusively, but predominantly in the New Testament. Do you find um, t uh, uh, TIS in interpreting the Old Testament a little trickier, only because we're not dealing with the fullness of Revelation; that we're dealing more with shadow copies? Um, 
a lot of metaphor that you that you mentioned, yeah. uh, especially also in the fact that uh, you know, in we have to account at least in Old Testament studies, we and we do this in New as well, uh, account for the literary setting in which these texts were written, and that is. Um, similar to other texts within its area, historical uh, uh, sensitivities, other nations, for example, other deities that that Israel is interacting with, Baal, Marduk, so forth. Uh, it can make um, a a theological reading of the Old Testament a little more— would that, it, is that okay? Is that right, or is that not the case? Oh, I, I, th- I hear what you're saying, and I think I agree with your kind of sensitivities and instincts there. So in the way Tyler and I lay out this approach in biblical reasoning— uh, it, it's certainly the case that in for most of the Old Testament, uh, n- you're not going to use the full range of kind of theological tools or principles we articulate because some of them some of them bear particularly on the person of Christ or the Trinity, which is only there in kind of um, mystery form, you know, concealed glimpses of it. Uh, it's there in certain prophecies. It's there in some of the Psalms, but it's it's kind of little bits of the iceberg coming above the surface. So it's going to apply less, maybe consistently or pervasively. But I think what does apply more consistently and pervasively is an understanding uh, of, if we're thinking about God as one, uh, an understanding of the, the the oneness of God, the holiness of God, the transcendence of God, uh, his sole sovereignty as creator. So basically any divine perfections or attributes that pertain to him simply insofar as he is one, all of those are operative all over the place. And I, I hear what you're saying. I, I think you're right that in a sense, um, the greater cultural distance uh, it does mean there's more that has to kind of come to the table. Archaeology, comparative ancient Near Eastern religion, all kinds of stuff that we have to kind of wrap our arms around when we're dealing with the Old Testament. Uh, but I, I do, I would say, I would speak up for a theological approach in this sense, that if, if uh, from, you know, the law, prophets, and the writings are all bearing witness to the one God, the one true God of creation and covenant, of, of Israel, uh, the, the God who spoke all things into existence by his word alone, then that absolute uniqueness and transcendence that we get even from the first sentence of Genesis 1-1 should inform every single interpretive move we make. And especially in dealing with some of this territory where Israel might be uh, polemically co-opting some of aspects of the worldviews of its neighbors. Um, you know, I think John Currid, what's his... his um, Oh, his little book with Crossway, I think it's called Against the Gods. And it's all about how in the context of Exodus in particular, there's a deliberately polemical theology. There's a polemical approach with bringing in Egyptian deities and Egyptian religious practices that the Old Testament is specifically targeting in a sort of critical and intelligent way. I think that's a good example. Maybe the theological approach there in Kurd's book is more implicit, but, but it's certainly what's informing him is a sense of the uniqueness and transcendence of God. He's in no way capitulating to, oh, well, you know, over here in this part of Exodus, God looks a little bit more like an Egyptian deity. So I think that the the holiness, the transcendence, the differentness of God uh, is every bit as much a kind of theological aspect of how we need to read those texts, though it's it's basically sort of keeping a— to put it in a nutshell, it would be preserving our thought from accidental idolatry— 
right. in how we read of these, you know, God, uh, yeah, in more anthropomorphic ways or, in, or you know, um, ways that are more in uh, kind of contrast with pagan deities around Israel or even terms that might be borrowed or, or themes that might be borrowed. How is that being borrowed and co-opted? I do think an awareness of effectively the creator-creature distinction as a guideline and a rule is is super important for the whole Old Testament. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Uh, I guess I would be curious. You mentioned earlier uh, a commentary you're doing on Ecclesiastes. Now, that's challenging on multiple different levels just within Old Testament alone. Yeah. So to take a TIS approach to it, I'd be really fascinated. Yeah, too. and you know, it's it's not exactly a commentary. It's more kind of a, a set of topical essays that try to string together my understanding of the big picture of the book. You know, and maybe one of the big challenges there is trying to sort of detect Ecclesiastes' theological presuppositions. Right. You know, there's a big debate in scholarship. How, how happy of a book is Ecclesiastes? How skeptical of a book is Ecclesiastes? And one thing I'm absolutely convinced of, this is maybe the most sort of TIS-y aspect of what I'm doing. I'm absolutely convinced that, that Ecclesiastes is continually, though often implicitly, reflecting on creation and the fall. And it's kind of like some parts of Ecclesiastes are looking at life through the lens of Genesis 1 and 2, some parts of Ecclesiastes are looking at the life through the lens of Genesis 3, 4, and beyond. Mm-hmm. And I think Ecclesiastes is sort of self-consciously, in some ways, reflecting on the still intact goodness of creation on the one hand, and then, of course, the pervasive effects of the fall on the other. And that those, those kind of perspectives that are so different that they could seem contradictory— are actually part of an integrated worldview of looking at the effects of the fall, the ongoing goodness of creation, and that's just part of the tension we live in. And uh, plenty of scholars say things like, you know, Ecclesiastes writes with, you know, Genesis 1 to 4 open in front of him, that, that kind of thing. You know, what, what's Kohelet doing? Um, so, yeah, it's more, I suppose, how, how TIS would inform my approach there is a kind of presupposition of consistency and yeah. coherence. Of course, wanting to do justice to the text and all of its bizarro diversity. <laughs> But I think you can explain that bizarro diversity through the kind of breadth and flexibility of a biblical worldview where creation and the fall are both really real and sort of so much intention that it almost seems contradictory. But that's our life. And and it kind of only takes the first four chapters of the Bible to give you that. (laughs) Right, right. So, okay, uh, pushback that I've heard. um, I think this is from Carson's... TIS Yes But, which is, sure, that which is yeah. a, I mean, a great title. I mean, yeah. it, yes. I don't classic Carson. I, I don't know how you can get away with that. But uh, I think he, he makes this point, um, you know, theological interpretation, yes, but whose theology? Yeah. And, I, and I'll like to put a little twist on that. Is, to what extent is TIS, you mentioned recovery, and this is incumbent on a top-down approach, right? If, if we're going to bring our theological system self-consciously into the exegetical process, the the creeds and confessions I subscribe to suddenly become exegetically yeah. significant. <coughs> so two mm-hmm. questions there. Does TIS skew a particular way? Like, it, you know, obviously Nicaea, Chalcedon, but Dort? Uh Westminster standards, Helvetic, you know, like what theological trajectory tends to TIS tend to work with? And then two, related to that, I guess, to to what extent is it ecumenical? Or can we talk about it as ecumenical? Yeah. Or is that even a value? 
Well, just one quick comment, but those are two really good questions. One quick comment before I hop in. You know, it's funny. I read that essay when it first came out about 12 years ago. Yeah. And I probably agreed with it more then than I do now. Okay. I mainly, I mainly blame Scott Swain, but that's maybe too long of a story to yeah. get, get into. Oh, no. This is what our readers want to hear. <laughs> well, actually, so okay. So, so fun story. Scott's wonderful book, uh, Trinity Revelation and Reading, which I'm okay. assigning in the upcoming class. Okay, good. I wrote a review of that for TGC when it first came out. And I mainly praised it to high heaven because it's a wonderful book. But I basically registered a kind of disagreement. Like, I'm not sure you need to say that this is like a TIS thing. Uh, to mm-hmm. me, it kind of looks like what's good in TIS isn't new and what's new isn't good, you know, right. more or less. And, and Swain, he wrote back very charitably. We actually corresponded about it. And he explained some of his difference. And 12 years on, I probably agree with him more than I agree with my 12 years ago self. Um, and that's largely through reading reading some of the stuff he's continued to do and effectively recognizing I, I've come to put, the change would be, I've come to put more weight and to derive more benefit from stuff that I felt was missing in my kind of reformed evangelical hermeneutical training. Mm-hmm. Just stuff, stuff that I didn't get maybe as prominently or in as organized a way yeah. in how I was taught to do hermeneutics. I love the basics, love grammatical, historical, love biblical theology. But yeah, I think I've come to appreciate some of the resources that were just not as developed in in how I was trained. So to your two questions, I'll take the ecumenical one first. Um, In one sense, I think that is both one of the virtues and the weaknesses of TIS as a movement. Uh, It is very ecumenical and it's sort of believing scholars, Hmm. but a range of what we would call more conservative or more liberal. Uh, and certainly it crosses the Protestant-Catholic divide. Mm. And a lot of TIS yeah. work has been done by Roman Catholics. I think one of the values there is that just pound for pound, Roman Catholics tend to be more schooled in the Church Fathers and in the medieval period mm. than, than yeah. evangelicals and Reformed folks tend to. And I think there's been some helpful you know, scholarship, helpful work they've done. Many of us are kind of playing catch up to some of that Roman Catholic scholarship. And so I think there's genuine benefit there. I think some of the ecumenical, you know, just like in the, Re- the Reformation and Reformed scholastics, I mean, guys are adopting stuff from uh, medieval scholasticism. They're critically interacting with uh, Roman Catholic scholarship of their day. So I do think actually the ecumenical reach of TIS is a helpful value. It is a value added in the sense of that some of those Roman Catholic scholars in particular just have a greater facility uh, with Trinitarian theology, Christology. And so I think that there's been an asset there. At the same time, I do think that can be a weakness in the sense of uh, if you're if if you're a biblical scholar, and you just have whatever your sort of theological system is. Mm. To Carson's question, whose theology? Mm-hmm. I mean, the more biblical theology, the more biblical the theology is, the better it's going to work. Like I, I, I don't, I don't see a way around saying, yeah. well, we all think we're getting our theology from the Bible. Um, that this is only going to work properly if it's the the actual theology of the Bible. And then I would just have to give my specific disagreements, kind of going from the outside in. You know, I'm, I'm a Protestant, not a Catholic. I'm Reformed, not Arminian. I'm da 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 da. You know, kind of zeroing in. Um, so in that sense, you can't escape kind of prior commitments. Yeah. And I think um, I think that's that's just life. That's that's just reality. And so to your question about you know canons of the Synod of Dort, Helvetic Confession. I mean, I think it's I think it's probably um, to be transparent about those commitments, and yeah. maybe even to show how that's working. 
Yeah. Uh, I think can actually aid aid clarification and help, um, you know, make how we're doing our exegesis in some ways more transparent. It, it gives you a kind of short handle. You know, even some of the very few places you guys and I might disagree about some key passages of Scripture that would have, you know, ecclesiological implications, all the rest. Well, one way of getting there quickly would be how do we define our kind of doctrines of, you know, baptism or, or the, the authority of the church or something like mm-hmm. that. It could help locate a disagreement quickly and lead to some intelligent you know, brotherly debate that then leads back into exegesis. Mm-hmm. So yeah, Carson's question is a good one. It's a fair one. I, I would just say some of some of the benefit of TIS has been that folks who have a fuller orbed understanding of the Trinity or the person of Christ, including in its biblical foundations, um, that has helped push evangelicals to a more elaborate and self-conscious articulation of some of these things. Mm-hmm. Well, Bobby, it is great uh, to have you here. Mm, I want to ask you about fourfold interpretation of Scripture. I want to <laughs> ask you about that. contextualization, <laughs> but we are we are sadly out of time and lunch awaits. But uh, it's good it's good to have you, and we'll have to have you back. Absolutely, that was fun, terrific. Thank you, appreciate it. Thanks, brothers. And to our listeners, we are glad to have you as well. And if you have questions, you can submit them in uh, the through the link in the show notes. And you can also find out more about Reformed Theological Seminary at our website. We'd be happy to talk to you further about all of those things. But for now, take care. Great. Thank you. Thanks. Appreciate it, guys. That was enlightening. Very helpful. This yeah. is, this is. I, I love having you. We've got to have you again, if for no other reason than... When Ecclesiastes comes out. I don't, oh, I don't have to one. do any edits. <laughs> it's just, you, you just do it in one take. It's nice. As opposed to my I was just going to say, I, I think I was mildly rebuked there. But, uh, <laughs> you know, to, to the kind of angle your questions were coming from, I would love to see somebody do a monograph that's kind of on the whole question of like monotheism, unity of God, the sort of evolutionary issues and do it in a theologically informed way. And even some of the stuff on like the body, body of God, all these kind of things that are like wacko, you know, theologically wacko stuff that either assume too much continuity with Israel in its context or that uh, assume that take anthropomorphism in a flat-footed way. And so we need, so given that, what is the Old Testament saying? And and the the immediate default is therefore they are saying what the other cultures around them are saying, right. you know, polytheism, right. henotheism, right. Um, things of this nature. And I think even in the Old Testament, that's not correct. Yeah, they're driven by covenant. Yeah, there's a standard. So if you worship Baal, or if you worship multiple gods, that's wrong. Yeah. Because the covenants don't allow that. There's sort of an in-depth <laughs> theology already. There's this hilarious tweet so. by a guy uh, who does New Testament at Houston Baptist, Paul Sloan. But he gets into historical backgrounds and some Old Testament stuff. And he has this hilarious tweet where it was like, mainstream Old Testament scholarship. You know, Israel worships a pantheon of local yeah, deities. Da, 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 da. Prophet Jeremiah weeping. I know! <laughs> right. right, exactly. Yeah. exactly. I know they do! That's exactly right. Is, is, and even, even where there is evidence, even, even that simple, like, yeah. Well, I mean, to, your, to your earlier point, I, you know, in this kind of complex... Yeah, that's great. God, that's great. <laughs> it'd be interesting to see, like, 1 Corinthians 10 in there, where Paul 
considers the Greek deities and doesn't conclude that they're nothing, yeah, they're imaginary, that's right. but that it's they're totally demons. Relevant. That's right. Well, it's I've totally heard, relevant. you know, you, yeah. you read about, you know, uh, uh, you know, when, when you do a, like a, a, a comparison thing, you know, God is better than Baal type thing, which you find the conclusion they're making, therefore, you see, they believe that Baal existed. Well, no, um, given the fact that they yeah. think he's there, right. it, the point is not the Baal, the point is Yahweh is better. And um, it, it's things like that that you read uh, and, 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 you know, it's sort of like, uh, you know, you read David uh, uh, or Abraham for that matter, you know, be, uh, being polygamous, therefore the Bible yeah. allows it. Well, no, because they are determined by the covenant. Yeah. It's not it. their life, right? So yeah. the fact that they are violating the covenant doesn't mean it's okay. Yeah. So it's uh, it is interesting. Easy peasy. Is Scott going to join us? No. Sadly, no. He is in oh. Houston. So you are oh, just you two guys. Just us. Yes. We, we tried to okay. get um, just us. Sadly, two biblical studies guys. We gave. Gray, the wrong address and time. <laughs> so, yeah, so that we could. <laughs> Is he coming to lunch at least? So we could grill you, uh, just the two of us, and make sure that. Um, well, I don't have a theological ally. I'm <laughs> yeah, we don't want you. We don't want you to have a theology ally. You're on, you're on safe grounds here. We're all. We all. Uh, we are all the same people. 